my name is Nick. Um, I, um, I, I want to start first with a disclaimer. When we, uh, when we planned the series, we, uh, we really just um, overlooked the fact that we were going to be diving into some real nitty-gritties on Mother's Day. And um, you're welcome. So uh, I just want to make this clear. I'm not apologizing for the message. I'm apologizing for the timing um, of the message. And, and also, in terms of our kids being in here, um, it's equally important. Um, there is so much disinformation uh, that is being spread. And so our junior high and high school is in with us today. If as a parent you would prefer that they not, um, then feel free to take them uh, to the back. But um, I just want to pray and just want to uh, dive straight in. Father, I want to thank you that uh, you created us in our mother's womb, body, mind, and spirit. Uh, I want to thank you that there is no part of us uh, that once we have uh, been rescued by you, once you have found us, uh, there's no aspect of our lives and our brokenness that you are not able to bring complete and utter and total healing to. Uh, and I want to pray this morning, firstly for your grace. Uh, I want to pray that you would enable me by your power uh, to speak words of life and truth. I want to thank you that you are a God that is so kind and gentle, but powerful and authoritative. You are so pure and holy and yet your mercies abound every morning. Uh, and I want to pray in the name of Jesus for you to protect our minds and hearts uh, as we work through some difficult subjects this morning. And we pray this in your name and for your glory. We are going to dive right in. So if, uh, if you have a Bible, you can go to the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that was written to a church uh, by a man called Paul. Paul was an, uh, an apostle, which... Uh, which really is uh, a church planter, missionary, and he's writing back to this church, and he's, um, he's heard some things about this church, not only in terms of the way in which they're interacting um, with regards to their money, with regards to their relationships, but particularly with regards to their sexuality. And this passage um, is actually part of a larger passage in the book of 1 Corinthians that is not just talking about sexuality, but it is talking about how different our lives as Christ followers should be in every area. And so this is a passage that comes after, just after the fact that Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, you guys should not be suing each other. This is not something you should be doing. And so we pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, and I'm reading from the ESV. He says, or do you not know? And I want you to, to look at that phrase, or do you not know? There's four of them in this passage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant 
for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Number two, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality, for every sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Do you not know? Paul is assuming that these are things they know. He's saying to them, there are, there are some four critical things that you need to understand about the way in which you were created, the way in which you function as a human being, as a sexual being. But the reality is, as we learned last week, we don't know. Uh, there's a lot of confusion that is going on, even within a body of Christ believers, about what that means. Uh, Bill Johnson says that when you get rid of a creator, you remove the concept of design. When you remove the concept of design, you get rid of purpose. When you get rid of purpose, you remove the need for accountability. When you remove accountability, you remove the fear of consequences. When you remove the fears of consequences, God is out of the question. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So with no God and no wisdom, we are left in total sexual confusion. I want to say at, at this uh, juncture is I am a, a, a functional pastor. Now, what that means is, yes, I'm a leader and yes, I'm a teacher, but, but I have the privilege and the pain of actually walking people through a lot of the things that we're going to be discussing today. This is not theory for me. And one of the challenges I have is, is to be able to, to, to bring the counter to each and every point, which is why we have the breakout session on Wednesday and which is why we're going to have the question and answer time on Sunday. So I'm just going to ask for a little bit of grace in that. When we talk about sexuality and God's pattern for human flourishing, uh, there is often the sense of even within this room, there are people that are not or have not lived up to God's pattern for human flourishing in the area of sexuality. And what I want to ask you this morning is to reject shame, but to embrace the corrective grace of God that can bring you freedom. Is to even right now just settle in your spirit, say, Spirit of God, before I react, before I reject, Please come and open my ears and the, and, and the eyes of my heart, as Paul says, that I can hear what you are saying to me. Remember last week we spoke about the fact that formation is something that is happening to us whether we like it or not. Just as we are being spiritually formed and psychologically formed, we are also being sexually formed. And it's also important for if, if you're a visitor or someone that's examining the, the claims of Christ, uh, what I'm talking about is what sexual ethic looks like for those that have accepted Jesus as the Lord and Savior. For those that are actually saying, this, I want to be an apprentice, a disciple of Jesus Christ. This is not about legislating morality. This is not about saying the fact that whatever you are engaged in sexually is wrong. This is about saying, what does it mean to live in a Christ-like way to be able to glorify God? Last week we learned that we were all sexually deformed in some way, that Adam's sin led to the deformation of every part of God's creation. Nature itself was, was deformed. It, it is groaning in anticipation of God's return. 
uh, our minds, our bodies, psychologically, every aspect of us has been broken or marred in some way. And in order to be sexually reformed, we need to remind ourselves that God is the designer of this body, that the Bible is the designer's handbook for this body, and we cannot place great emphasis on our own desires, sexual or otherwise. Because we are selfish and because we, we have been broken and deformed, what I think, what I feel, and what I desire or what I think satisfies me is not the benchmark. Then what do I do with these desires? Where do they come from and how do I handle that? Well, religion has a formula in terms of what you are supposed to do with your desires. So can you figure that out? You guys know the answer, right? Religion's formula is this, moral standards plus willpower equals holiness and flourishing. So we're going to set the moral standard, you're going to grit through it, and then you'll be holy and you'll flourish. But we know in experience what has happened with this formula. The reality is, is that moral standards and willpower equals failure multiplied by shame and guilt. And that's where we stand, where we put our hope in religion. Religion has told us that you need to fear sex and you need to fear your desires. And the problem is often in the context of religion, the deformation that we've experienced is because of a repressive, moralistic, Victorian, unbiblical view on sex. As a church, we really haven't done a good job. We have talked about sex in hushed and embarrassed tones rather than boldly declare that it is a gift that God has given so that we can enjoy intimacy, ecstasy, and communion. The church has been complicit in horrific sexual abuse. Generally, the, the, the church has not taught sexuality in a way that strengthens and clarifies what real marriage is. It has not honored singleness or recognized brokenness. And it hasn't accepted those that don't fit into the box. Generally speaking, what we've done is we haven't challenged sinfulness with grace and love. We have skirted issues of sin. And as a church, we have tended to focus on one area of deformation over another. And then as, a, as a church, we focused on, on an area of, of brokenness in terms of same-sex attraction with regards to what that means and not focused on purity within marriage and our own sexuality as heterosexuals. The historical church has elevated marriage and by definition the orgasm as the pinnacle of human emotional and physical fulfillment. And thereby we've alienated singles, widows, divorced, and those who struggle with same-sex attraction. Now I'm sorry that that is the history that we have, but that doesn't mean that we throw out the baby with the bathwater. And that we need to look at the biblical view of sexuality, not as something that we need to be afraid of or some kind of weight that we cannot bear, but as something that ultimately does bring us what we want, which is freedom and flourishing. Okay, so if we're not going to fear our desires and if we're not going to fear sex, then this is what we're going to do. We're just going to follow our desires. Now, uh, those of you that have gone to Blaze Pizza, right? Or Chipotle or the counter. What you do is you have it your way. Um, my wife and I, we, we went to, uh, I think it was Slater's, and uh, it's, it's one of those kind of gourmet burger bars, and, and she wanted it her way. So she decided that everything that she liked, she was going to put on this burger. So she put grilled onions, coleslaw, 
barbecue sauce and horseradish. And the guy's like, okay, check, check, check. She brings it and she's like, that was a bad decision. I'm like, you think? You know, the idea is that if I combine every desire into one thing, I'm really going to enjoy this. You know, how many of you guys have been to a really, really nice steak restaurant where they refuse to make your steak well done? Why? Because that's what they should do. You should never, ever have a steak unless there is a little bit of blood left on your plate. That is how it was designed, right? In Portland, there are now coffee shops that refuse to even carry, never mind give you, milk and sugar. Why? Because this, that's right, right? This is the way that coffee was meant to taste. Now, when you go to one of these fancy restaurants, you kind of accept that because you're thinking they know better than I do. There is a chef in the back there that's gone to school for this kind of thing. But when you're at Umami Burger, Chris Johnson, and they refuse to give you a slice of tomato because that doesn't go with your burger, then you're like, no, you revolt. And you say, no, this is a burger. This is not a $25 New York strip steak. This is a burger. I want tomato on this. What's the point of what I'm saying? I know. <laughs> the point of what I'm saying is, in the area of sexuality, we have tastes. But there is an overarching sense in which when we come into the, the presence of God and saying, God, how have you designed this to work? This is not just umami burger where they think they're better than they are. This is actually a really expensive place where they've taken time, energy, and effort and said, we want to maximize the experience of what it is like to enjoy steak in this place. And what God is saying is ultimately what you need to understand is I'm trying to maximize the experience of joy and passion and exuberance that you can have, not limited. But society says this is the formula to deal with our desires. If you have a desire, all you need to do is add experimentation and, of course, consent, and then you end up with freedom and flourishing. But as we learned last week, if you have desire, experimentation, and consent, you end up with disillusionment. The changing attitudes about sex, about femininity, masculinity, marriage, and gender, and we, we covered some of that last week. It's fluid and very confusing. Sex in the human body is simultaneously belittled and elevated. It's belittled. Lady Gaga sings the song, you can have my body, but you can't have my mind. There's a sense in which we can just hand out our bodies to whatever and, 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 and be engaged in just uh, hookup sex. My, my body isn't really there, that important. And then Bruno Mars sings, um, your sex takes me to paradise, and if I can't get it, I've been locked out of heaven. At the same time, we have the sense of, this is just your body. No, this is this mystical experience uh, that, that will somehow elevate me to heaven. Uh, the, the hypocrisy of uh, Time's Up and hashtag Me Too at the Golden Globes last year, where everyone was wearing those, those things, which is important and necessary, and yet Game of Thrones is nominated for the best drama series, where... In reality, they are still commoditizing the female form and they are still commoditizing sex. It's confusing. 
the Olympic Games. What does it mean to be a woman to be able to compete in a race? Does that mean that you are literally a woman? Does that mean that your testosterone levels need to be at a certain level? Does that mean that you need to feel like a woman? What does that mean? This, this is an important thing that they are struggling to deal with now in the upcoming Olympics. It's confusing. So if we can't fear our desires, and we can't follow our desires, then what God has called us to is to present ourselves to Him so that he is able to reform our desires, so that we are able to engage in a way that models him and the communion that he shares with the Holy Spirit and with his Son. The first thing that we need to do is, uh, in, in, in presenting ourselves to God is we need to accept that there are limitations to the sexual experience. Now, there's limitations of and in. What I mean is there are limitations, and we're going to go through it, we think that if we, are, if we somehow find this partner that we can experience sexual intimacy with, then we will be fulfilled. That's not true. But then there are also limitations of the sexual experience that God has said to us that we are to experience this within these limitations. Proverbs 6, uh, verses 24 to 29 say this, Don't lust after her beauty. He's talking about a prostitute. Don't let her coy glances seduce you. For a prostitute will bring you to poverty, but sleeping with another man's wife will cost you your life. Can a man scoop a flame onto his lap and not have his clothes catch on fire? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. You, you, you can't do that. Can he walk on hot coals and not blister his feet? No. So it is with a man who sleeps with another man's wife. He will embrace her and he will not go unpunished. Biblical marriage is the only place for sexual expression and fulfillment. Fire belongs in a fireplace. Now, no one is saying, Nick, that's legalistic or archaic. No, it's common sense. If you want to enjoy a fire, you put it in the fireplace. And the Bible is clear and consistent on this, that sex expressed in a covenantal union between one man and one woman for life is the fireplace that God has ordained for us. But having a fireplace does not immediately mean that your desires, your sins, your patterns, your past are magically dealt with. Just because you've moved into a house with a fireplace does not mean that. The fireplace is for our protection. It protects us and also protects the people around us. Uh, there's that little mesh in the front of the fireplace. Now that is God's word, this community, and a vulnerable kind of openness to what it means to be engaged in community. Now, this is important. How many of you have gone down the road and you've seen people kind of set up? There's, there's no walls, there's no roof. They're just huddled around a fireplace. That's not a house, right? A fireplace is part of a house. Uh, what makes a fireplace this nice, warm place is that it is part of a broader story, which is the house. So, so sexual experience is one part of the house. And what we think is that as we approach our sexual experience, that it is the most important and core thing with regards to our house. No, no it isn't. Just like anything else, a fireplace is part of the broader thing. Now, now ladies, in the context of your relationship with your husbands, you cannot treat your husband like a donkey and expect him to perform like a stallion. 
That's part of having the rest of the house organized. Husbands, you can't mistreat your wife, not sacrifice and love her, and not love her, and expect her to be abandoned in the context of lovemaking. It doesn't work that way. If there is not a consistent fire burning, it doesn't matter how many logs you throw into that fire, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Uh, fireplaces, and we'll talk more about that. We have talked about this with marriage and divorce. So we'll talk more about that. Sex outside of the fireplace damages our own body, our souls, the body and soul of the other person, and it is indiscriminate. It's not like a fire will burn in this direction and say, okay, no, I'm just, no, it, it just burns everything in its path. Paul tells us the consequences of sexual sin are more dramatic than any other sin. That does not mean that God is not able to forgive, God is not able to heal. It just means that the consequences are greater. Having fire outside of the fireplace causes you to hide and it causes you to lie. We hide from God, we hide from ourselves, we hide from community, we hide from our partner. And I've, I've literally seen this shrivel people's souls. There is a burden that people are carrying because they've been burnt and continue to burn because the fire is not in the fireplace. It blocks intimacy. It's almost impossible to increase your level of intimacy with your partner if there are hidden compartments in your life. It's impossible to increase your level of intimacy, even with God, if you are refusing to take the fire and put it in the place that God had prepared for that. And like I said, marriage and sex will not meet your deepest need, your deepest desire, and your deepest longing. There are enough wounded married people that will tell you their story. And we've unfortunately, again, misused the scripture that says it's better for you to marry than to burn. And this idea of, of like, okay, well, um, I can't control my sexual desire, so I'm just going to marry the first person that is going to say yes. It's a horrible decision. It's a horrible decision. It's a misuse of that scripture. Tim Keller says this, Others of us hope that unending affection and affirmation from a beautiful, brilliant, romantic partner will finally make us feel good about ourselves. That turns the relationship into a form of salvation and no relationship can ever live up to that. Your partner will never fully satisfy all of your needs because they were never designed to fully satisfy all of your needs. They are going to be an instrument of refining for God to make you more Christ-like. Uh, let, let me help you. Not only in marriage are you confronted with your own sinfulness, but you are receiving the blows of your partner's sinfulness either directly or indirectly. You're placing yourself in a place of hurt and pain. And the problem with that is we think that we are able to maintain that without a deep, devotional, intimate relationship with Jesus. I do not think uh, that marriage is sustainable without the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Um, this is incredibly difficult to just start at the point of getting married. If you want building a relationship that is based on devotion and intimacy and desire with Jesus now, you can't just flip the switch when you get married. And all of a sudden, your partner doesn't necessarily need to fulfill all your needs. We've seen that. It is dramatically painful. 
The second thing that we need to do as we present ourselves to God for reformation is to revel in appropriate sexual experience. Proverbs 5 verse 15 to 20 says this, Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. I guess in those days that was like a, you know, <laughs> hey, you're a pretty cool doe. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman or the embrace in the bosom of an adulteress? This is erotic. It's graphic. God is not approved. Biblical sexuality is marked by intimacy, by ecstasy, but by exclusivity. And that's the key in all of this. God is not saying, I want to I tone down this desire that I put in you. He says, no, I want you to experience the fullness of that within the fireplace of exclusivity, which is covenant marriage, a husband and wife for life. I don't get better at sex in general. I get better at sex with Karn. That's the point of having a covenantal relationship. The way we participate, the way we talk about, the, the, the way in which we engage in conversations with regards to our sexual experience in marriage has to be a pointer to the world. Yes, this is something to be enjoyed. Yes, this is something that I'm super glad I get to participate in. But this is not what makes me human. This is not what makes me loved. This is not what gives me purpose. We need to be able to talk about sex with reverence, with, mis with mis mischievousness within marriage, with mystery and abandoned joy. I remember walking through the mall with one of my daughters. And um, we were walking past the Victoria's Secret's... Uh, um, display. I can't think of a better word for that. It literally is a display. And so, um, and so one of my daughters says, oh, dad, that's so gross. And I'm like, no, baby, that's not gross. It's inappropriate. It's not gross. I said, you know, your, your mom has lingerie. She's like, no! <laughs> I said, baby, do you know that one day you're going to buy stuff like that? No, no one's going to make, no, no make you wear that, but, but one day when you are going to be married, you are going to enjoy sex with your husband. It's going to be an amazing thing. And she wanted to end the conversation right there. I'm sure most of you are like, yeah, can we end that conversation right now? There is a difference between what is appropriate and there is a difference between what is gross. And unfortunately, within the context of the church, what we've done is just fear. That's gross. No, it isn't. There is a time where you're going to be mature enough to be able to understand the joy of what that means. There's going to be a time where, where you are able to, to, to look at your body and look forward to being able to present your body to your partner because there's safety and security in the context of marriage. One of the main ways that we are deformed in this society, in the context of all of our sexuality, but particularly in this area, is the area of pornography and masturbation. 
And someone sent me a, a photo of the earth the other day, and it was called nature porn. And I'm like, what does that mean? It was a beautiful picture of the earth. And so now there's food porn or house porn. And what that is, is like a picture of something I should desire. And it makes no sense to me. I'm like, basically what we've done is we, we've taken something that, that is illicit and we've turned it into normal language. It's wrong. Rates of porn use, premarital sex, cohabitation, and unbiblical divorce are unfortunately very similar between the Christ follower and someone that, that claims no Christian ethic. In 57% of divorces, regardless of whether you're a Christ follower or not, one of the partners um, had an addiction to pornography. That 57%. That wasn't necessarily the only reason for divorce. But in 57% of divorces, that's what happened. Pornography tells us that sex is all about pleasure and it doesn't even have to engage any kind of relationship. It, it literally, and, and um, it, it, it has been proven to literally rewire our brains. And when I say, ow, this used to be a male problem. This is not a male problem anymore. It rewires us physiologically. Our bodies don't respond in the same way anymore. Uh, we, we develop a tolerance to sexual images, which means that, that we need to get darker with the kind of stuff that we look at. It means that we are in, uh, unable to orgasm or even impotent. It literally rewires us physiologically. But not only that, it rewires us socially. Why? I have less empathy for people because I begin to view people as objects rather than people. So even socially, the way that I interact with people shifts in my mind. And relationally, we covered this last week, I don't have an ability to interact with a female. I don't need to. All I need to do is click, and I get exactly what I want. A young man asked C.S. Lewis what the real issue with masturbation was, and this is what C.S. Lewis said. For me, the real e evil of masturbation would be that it takes an appetite, which in lawful use leads the individual out of himself to complete and correct his own personality and that of another, and finally children and even grandchildren, and turns it back, sends the man back into the prison of himself, there to keep a harem of imaginary brides. And what he's saying is there, there is a desire that God has put in you, uh, but our brokenness makes it... The, the stuff that was most supposed to take us out of ourselves actually brings us back into ourselves. And this is, this is the problem. And this harem, once admitted, works against his ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifices or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological, psychological attractions to which no real woman can rival. In other words, there's no real woman that can actually be the picture of what he's seeing in that. Amongst these shadowy brides, he is always adored. He is always the perfect lover. No demand is made on his unselfishness. There's no mortification ever imposed on his vanity. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. After all, almost 
the main work of life is to come out of ourselves. Basically what he's saying is that God's pattern for you is instead of being curved in on yourself through sin, is to come out of yourself through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But this actually makes you curve more in on yourself. We aren't able to come out of this little dark prison we were all born in. Masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided that retard this process. What process? The process of coming out. The danger is that of coming to love the prison. And that's what he says about that. Wow, Nick, this is more than I wanted to hear at church. I'm not sorry. This is a place where we need to be able to speak truth and grace and love. And the most important thing that I want to say about this is there is cleansing, there is hope, there is freedom. You have been washed, sanctified, and justified. Do not buy the lie that this is your life. Do not buy the lie that this prison is locked in and you can't get out. And do not buy the lie that it doesn't matter. It matters. The problem with porn is not that we see too much of a person, is that we see too little of a person. And God has made us as complete human beings. And last week we spoke about the fact that somehow we were able to, to separate our bodies from who we, we truly are. The, the problem with pornography is not only are you separating the person that you're gazing on, you're separating yourself. Because in order to deal with the guilt and shame, you're drawing the separation between who you are and your body as some kind of separate appendage. And you're experiencing this weird kind of sexual schizophrenia where this is not me. No, this is you. And God wants to rescue all of you. And there is freedom for you. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, uh, where people are experiencing shame and guilt, where people are feeling uncomfortable, God, in the name of Jesus, I want to pray for your grace and strength. I want to pray that you would speak hope. I want to pray, Father God, that people would desire and know that freedom is accessible and available. And I want to pray, Father God, even right now, as people are wondering whether this is something they should bring into the light or confess, God, in Jesus' name, let your light shine where there is darkness. Bring freedom, my God. I am uh, not a good faster. I fast because it's a discipline. The heavens do not open, the angels do not sing. I was convinced that my dog's food bowl that was a day old and had dog pellets and three-day-old salmon in it was like, wow, that doesn't look that bad, you know? <laughs> That's the problem, is that our hunger and desire for relationship, our hunger and desire for these things makes this disgusting stuff look appealing to us. You know, one of the major reasons I fast is because my body is not the boss of me. I get to tell my body, no, you can't have that. And it is one of the best lessons that we can learn. And that is one of the, the, the reasons why I do fast. Is, is not because it's this amazing spiritual experience. 
but I'm able to actually say, God, by your empowerment and by your strength, I can say no to the desire of my body. Who am I becoming? What am I being formed into? The third thing is that we need to participate in gospel community. How on earth does that help with my sexual formation? How on earth does being part of a gospel community help? Well, your purpose is to know God, to be with Him and to enjoy Him and glorify Him forever. And you can do that whether you're single or whether you're married, whether you're attracted to men or whether you're attracted to women. That is not the, the issue here. What we get when we're part of a faith community is we get accountability and vulnerability. Remember the mesh in the front of the, of the fireplace? That's what community provides. It prevents the fire from coming out and it also prevents you from walking into someone else's fireplace. Dating is safer, not safe, in the context of a community because you're not dating in a vacuum. People know that you're involved in this relationship. Marriage is easier, not easy. I don't think I would still be married if it wasn't for community. That has nothing to do with Karen, it has everything to do with me. Amen. The second reason that being part of a faith community helps with our sexual formation is that it helps us acknowledge the human desire for companionship. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, he wasn't saying it's not good for the man, the, the, the male to be alone. He was stating an eternal truth that the human race, humanity was not designed to be alone. The human race was made for companionship whether we're married or unmarried whether we started married and are now no longer married, whether we never be married, whatever the case is, we were built for companionship. Some of you may know who Christine Nethers is. She's in her mid to late 30s. She's single. Um, she's moved to Australia to help an advanced church. And I, um, I asked her this question. I said, Christine, how do you suppress your desires to be married, your desires to have children, um, and she like, she just whipped straight back at me. I, f I felt like a, I felt like a child. She says, Nick, I don't suppress them. I don't redirect them. I submit them to God. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> it's like that's like a drop the mic there. You know what I mean? Boom. But she she didn't do that to kind of prove something to me. She she said literally, it's the only thing I can do. It's the only thing that God calls me to biblically do is to submit my desire to Him because I have this promise that as I submit myself to Him, He will give me the desires of my heart and I am too broken to know what the true desire of my heart is. Now that's a mature approach. That's not even an approach I had when I asked her the question. I was just asking her for some practicals in terms of how to do that. Now this is much more complex for those that suffer with same-sex attraction. You know, during this fast, on Tuesday at lunchtime, that's how long my self-discipline and control lasted, you know. And I'm sitting there, and literally, these are the words I said. I said, oh, you're going to eat in two days' time. And just then I realized, and, and God, during this fast, stirred a deeper empathy for people that struggle with same-sex attraction. That is not something that someone with same-sex attraction can actually ever say. Now, if you're single, if you're widowed, if you're divorced, that is something that you can say, I may eat 
again in the future. Uh, Christine has not said, that's it. I'm never going to get married. I'm fine with that. And so in this context, and we'll talk much more about this as Paolo is with us next week, part of why we want to establish a strong faith community in the context of this church is to be able to walk with people. We need to expand our view of what family is. People that are single for whatever reason, unmarried, divorced, widowed, or same-sex attraction, they need to know that they are needed and that they belong. We are able as a faith community to provide a genuine community in which people can feel valued and people can feel like they're contributors and still understood in that process. To the married among us, I want to say let's stop communicating that someone is somehow incomplete unless they are married. Let's not assume that they're lonely. Let's not assume that they have ample amounts of time, lots of energy, and that they all want to be set up. Now let me say this. I feel trapped by this sometimes. Because the reality is in our community, there are people who want to be set up. There, there are people that come to me and say, hey, what are you doing about this? I'm like, I'm working on it. You know? <laughs> I'm just really bad at that. Really, it is not one of my gifts. The whole idea of being set up is really not one of my, I'm, this is my idea of set up. I like you, and I like you, therefore you two should like each other. <laughs> For whatever reason, that doesn't seem to work, you know. So to the married, married among us, can we find ways to try and engage those that are not married, regardless of sexual orientation, so that we can find genuine companionship? Do you know how you can know whether you can ask questions about marriage, whether you can ask questions um, about whether they want to be set up or not. you know how to know that with a single person? Talk to them. That's brilliant, right? Let's not assume that there is some kind of band that every single person is on. Let's talk and engage with people that are outside of our life station so that we can find what that looks like. This has to have a concrete impact on the way we live, the way we use our homes, time, and money. Whoa. Singles. Thanks, David. Singles, can you find grace to not take every comment that a married person makes about your station in life as a pick at your wound? We really are not trying to do that. We're just dumb sometimes. It's true. We, we are. We view life through our lens and a lot of the things that we say are not meant to hurt. They do, and I understand that. But can you give us some grace in that area? Just understand this. Outside of this community, there are married people that are more lonely than you are. That may be hard for you to fathom, but that is true. Lastly, we need to rest in the arms of a celibate, single Savior. Jesus had unlimited power to allure women. He never abused it. He had women following him. He had women touching him. He had women worshiping him. He elevated women and honored them in ways that were never thought of at that time. Those women would have done anything for him. He never married and never had sex. And you say to me, but he was God. That is heretical. It's not just wrong, it's heretical. He was fully man. 
In other words, absolutely experienced everything that we experienced. Otherwise, how can he say that he's able to help us in our weaknesses and fully God? This idea that we can't aim for that kind of pattern because that's just a God thing, that's a sick joke. Because that means that the way in which Jesus modeled his life is unattainable for us. So let's just pack up and go home right now. Self-controlled people are not strict people. They're satisfied people. They just are satisfied. When I came home from the fast, I ate because I could. <laughs> I opened the fridge and I ate weak old crackers. Why? Because I can. <laughs> Stupid. But this is the thing. If you are satisfied... There is a measure of self-control that comes that is almost automatic. If we find our satisfaction in Him, self-control is something that walks alongside us in the context of satisfaction. We don't have to be super strict all the time. What is God's formula for our desires? God's formula for our desires is a biblical vision. Yeah, right? It's a complicated formula, right? It's actually not. It's a biblical vision plus practices that shape us into Christ-likeness, this is the most important element of the formula. Multiplied by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, which leads to freedom and flourishing. We started with four do not knows. Do you not know? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Jesus' sacrifice has made you righteous. You have been washed. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your body is a precious component of the wholeness of who you are as a soul. And it is part of a greater whole connected to every Christian around this planet. Do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute and becomes one body with her? That sex is a beautiful unifying act for the purpose of imaging God in marriage. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? And this is something that I want to state very, very clearly. We say, yes, um, the reason that I need to engage with the Spirit and participate in practices that open me up so that I'm able to fulfill what God's pattern for sexuality is, is because the Holy Spirit lives inside me and is the temple of the Holy Spirit and I don't want to defile it. That is one part of it. It's only one part of it. You know what the other part of it is? If the Holy Spirit is in you, you are empowered. So you aren't just beautiful because the Holy Spirit resides in you. You are powerful. And so for some of us, we say, yes, the Holy Spirit resides in me. And I feel the sense of shame because what I've done is I've defiled my body and therefore the Holy Spirit. Yes, but the Holy Spirit is in you, enabling you to say no to ungodliness. In Titus it says, the grace of God has appeared to all men, teaching us to say no to ungodliness. We have the grace of God that has made us the temple of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God that enables us to say no. Jesus has and will continue to rescue us. David, you can come up. Proverbs 6 verse 32 says this, but the man who commits adultery, now remember adultery in its broadest possible sense, like we covered in Matthew, the man who commits adultery is an utter fool for he destroys himself. Listen to this. He will be wounded and disgraced and his shame will never be erased. 
He will be wounded and disgraced and his shame will never be erased. But God. But God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Jesus, I want to thank you that you took on our wound, the shame and disgrace of our sexual deformation, and you nailed it to the cross with every other enemy. That you were abused, you were stripped, you hung naked on a cross, willingly wounded and disgraced so that I would never be put to shame again. I want to thank you that the greatest act of love was not some kind of physical romantic love, but it was your decision to lay down your life so that we would never experience shame and guilt again. That we could be free from addiction. That we could be free from sexual brokenness. That we could be free from the pain that was committed upon us. That we have the power to forgive through you. That we are able to be cleansed and healed because of you. That you are able to give us everlasting peace righteousness and joy as no other human being can you have recreated our souls our bodies and our minds you are reforming us and we are so grateful for that jesus spirit of god lead us as we respond now i pray